Welcome to our lesson for today. If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, that's where we'll be um, continuing in the story of Jesus. To summarise the story um, so far in four sentences, um, Jesus is a teacher from the small town of Nazareth and he has been causing a real stir in the community because of his teaching on the kingdom of heaven. His message is about a radical new way of life, and it's a sharp criticism of the current religious leaders in Jerusalem. He accompanies his message by conquering over diseases and people who are oppressed by demons, by, by casting out those demons. And then when his disciples declare his messiahship, he reveals to them that he'll become the king, not by some military attack on Jerusalem, but rather by going, by being tortured, eventually by being killed and then raised from the dead. That's where we're up to in our story. And we left Matthew 16 last week on a real cliffhanger. The, the final um, verse there is, is a real to-be-continued moment um, that makes you, you know, wait for the next episode to come out and keen to see where does this story go, what happens next. It ends with Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So today we're, we're going on from that step. We're going on to um, chapters 17 and 18, and that's what we'll be reading through in the next week if you're following in our devotional booklets. So chapters 17 and 18 are roughly about this concept of what is true greatness. We've established so far that the disciples, they've got a completely wrong understanding of what it means for Jesus to be king. Um, they're picturing something and Jesus is saying something completely different. And, and so far, there's just confusion between them as Jesus keeps telling them one thing and they keep hearing something else and picturing something else. These chapters are really important in the story so far because most of Jesus' teaching has, up to this point, been about an individual response to his message. So... What we have seen so far is that Jesus has mostly taught on how to be, how to respond to the kingdom individually. And what we're going to see as we go into these chapters in particular is how being a member of this kingdom, being part of this um, kingdom movement means that you are not just practicing a private uh, religious belief on your own. It means that you are going to be part of a community of people who are trying to introduce the world to the new king, King Jesus. So today we're going to do an overview of chapter 17 and 18. And through that process, we're going to um, discover what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to share that with a community of, of fellow um, followers. All right, so last week um, we looked at Jesus in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was north of where he um, was living beforehand. And from now on in the book, we're going to be on this journey that Jesus is taking down to Jerusalem. So he goes back down to Capernaum, where he was based, and then he's going to go further south down to Jerusalem, where he's going to attend the Passover festival, and that's where he will eventually die, as he has predicted in the previous chapter. So let's have a look at um, these chapters, starting at chapter 17. And uh, let's look at some of the main things that are happening um, in these chapters. Give a bit of an overview. So chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, we have the, 
this story of Jesus taking his um, four closest, um, sorry, three closest um, disciples, Peter, James and John, and, and he goes up onto a mountain with them and they experience this, this very strange, very peculiar event. Um, Jesus' body has something different happen to it. There's a whole heap of Old Testament allusions that happen in this passage. You have to go back and read the Old Testament to kind of get an idea of what's going on here. Um, but the whole concept of this, the whole reason for this, I think is predominantly to once again confirm that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the true King, the Son of God. And you can see that because in verse 5 of chapter 17, it says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So we see in, in this occasion um, that uh, this is almost identical to the words that the Father spoke back in chapter 3 when Jesus was baptised. So this is almost like a reconfirming of the identity of Jesus, that he truly was the Son of the Father in whom um, the Father was well pleased. And the disciples needed this encouragement because they had just had their faith rocked by what Jesus had said in the previous chapter. Jesus had told them something that they didn't see coming in a million years. And so when he delivered them that news, uh, their faith was, was certainly um, shaken, to say the least. And this event seemed to be very big in the life of Peter. If you just look over at Second Peter with me, the book of Second Peter, you see that Peter actually reflects on this event. He actually talks about this and how much it impacted him in his faith. Second Peter um, chapter 1 and verses 16 through... 21, 2 um, Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, I'm not telling you a lie. This isn't some fable that was concocted here. I guarantee this is the truth. He says in verse 17, For when he received honour and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, that time on the mountain, that confirmed to me that what happened was really true. And we saw it. It's interesting to see what Jesus says um, in uh, verse 9 of Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 9. It says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so Peter, having witnessed this, he obviously holds on to this as a great sign of confirmation that what he believes about Jesus is really true. And he delivers that to others after Jesus is raised from the dead. 
The next story that we have is the healing of um, a young boy. This is another healing story, and I'm not sure exactly why um, this story is placed here, but you'll notice again the theme is that the disciples are kind of wavering in their faith. In verses 19 and 20, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The disciples had their faith really shaken in the last chapter, and and now we see Jesus is trying to reinstill in them that their faith is um, it's true, it is confirmed, it is on a solid foundation. We have the next story here um, in verses 22 and 23. Jesus predicts his death um, again. So in verses 22 and 23, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Isn't this great? It's just a, it's almost like a seesaw going up and down. They have their faith back in them. And then Jesus balances it out by saying, but this is still going to happen. I'm still going to go to Jerusalem where I will suffer and um, be killed. In verses 24 to 27, uh, chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, we have this story of the temple tax. So there are some Jews who come to Jesus and ask him if he's going to pay a tax that was due. Um, Now this tax, Josephus tells us that this tax was collected every year in the lead up to the Passover festival, in the month preceding the Passover festival. So Jesus is going to be killed at the Passover festival. So we know that from this point on in the story, this is covering a month leading up to when Jesus was going to be killed. And I don't know about you, but it feels like this is, we've only just begun the story and already we're into the final month um, of what is going to happen in Jesus' life. So the next 11 chapters that we read are going to cover just a period of a couple of weeks, four weeks at most. And we're going to see here that Matthew is very clear. These chapters, what happens in this moment, is most critical to understanding who Jesus really was. So this is a tax that had to be paid um, by the Jews. The the Pharisees um, made the Jews pay it. And there were some Jews who, who didn't think they should pay it. There were some groups who said, oh, no, that's not really a tax that you have to pay. There was some support from the Old Testament, but not a lot of support. So they come to Jesus and to his disciples and they say, is your teacher going to pay this tax, the didrachma tax, the two drachma tax? And Jesus says, he points out essentially, if, if they really knew who Jesus was, that he was the son of God, would they be asking him to pay um, this tax to maintain the temple? He'd already told them that something greater than the temple was here. So... Should he really pay the tax? Well, you wouldn't ask Jesus, the Son of God, to pay this tax to go towards the temple. But a really important thing happens in verse 27. In verse 27 it says, However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them uh, for me and for yourself. All of these stories about Jesus give us some great 
anecdotes, some great evidence on the, the real character that Jesus had. He wasn't here to demand that he gets his own way. He wasn't here to, to demand that everyone bows down to him in every single thing and that um, he gets his way every single time. In this instance, um, he, he thinks, well, this isn't fair. This isn't really right that you're asking this from me, but this isn't a big issue and I'm just going to move on. Jesus knew when to stand up and make an issue out of things and he knew when to sit down and shut his mouth and just allow things to go on. Do Christians always know when to make a big deal out of something and when to just let it go? Absolutely not. Um, we get this wrong all the time. I get this wrong all the time. Making big issues out of small things um, and making big things, uh, making small things into big things. It happens both ways. So this is just a, I think this is a great story to say, um, let's be more like Christ. Let's make sure if there's something in my life right now that I'm making a big deal out of, that I'm really planting my feet in the ground and firmly saying I can't be moved on this topic, maybe it's time for me to read about Jesus and say, there were some things that he just let go, that he said, that's not a big deal, let's just go with it. Okay, now let's get into um, our real core text for today and that's in Matthew 18 verses 1 through 9. Let's read verse 1. It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now it doesn't say that Jesus rolled his eyes at this question and it doesn't say that he let out a big sigh and it doesn't say that he muttered under his breath, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> But those responses would have been fairly merited to such an obnoxious question like this. In the context, Jesus has told them that he's about to be tortured and killed. And then they come to him and they say, how can I be the greatest person ever? They don't ask him, you know, how can I love my neighbour more? How can I also give my life in self-sacrificial love for my enemies? They come to him and they say, how can I be the best person. And to be honest, a lot of uh, religious people today still ask those same questions. It's not uh, a first century problem. It's a, it's a humanity problem, isn't it? You go into any religious bookstore and there are countless books telling you how to be the best person that you can be, how to be great, how to be good at this and, and great at this. It's really asking the wrong question. It's really not getting the point. And Jesus will point this out. In verse 2 and 3, he says, and calling to him a child, he put it, him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, the word turn is really convert or repent, unless you change your whole life and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They say, how can I be the greatest? Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you won't even get in there, let alone be the greatest in there. You won't even get in full stop. So what is it about um, children that we are to emulate? Well, Jesus says it in the next verse, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's about humility. News flash to the disciples. The greatest people in the kingdom of heaven don't go around trying to become the greatest people in the kingdom of heaven. That's a completely back-to-front view of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And Jesus doesn't just say that it requires humility here. He actually goes on and makes this teaching even harder and, and more challenging. 
Um, he draws their attention to the fact that you don't need to look to elevate yourself in the kingdom of heaven. You need to be looking at how you can serve others, not how you can be the best that you can be in the kingdom of heaven, but you need to focus on the other people who are around you. Look at um, verse 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I think this is perhaps one of the strongest teachings that Jesus gives anywhere. There's no delicate way to put this. Jesus says, what's better to offend a follower of, of Jesus or to get the biggest stone, a millstone, a, a stone that's used for crushing grain and making flour, on those, a, a massive big stone, attaching it to your head and jumping into a lake. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what's better out of those two options. This is how seriously Jesus takes the relationships between his followers. Being a follower of Jesus is not about you just independently, privately practicing a, a holy life. It's about you being involved in a community of people who are flawed and who are imperfect in many ways. And your job is to, as much as possible, encourage and lift them up, serve them and do anything you can to not cause them to stumble. This isn't easy. This is uh, this lesson probably should have come with a rating <laughs> attached to it. This is really heavy stuff. This is Jesus saying you can't just get a free pass when it comes to your fellow Christians. You can't just say, oh, you know, I don't get along with brother so and so. That's okay. I don't get along with sister this. Um, we have arguments. I know she doesn't like it when I do this, but that's just how it is. Jesus is saying, no. You know what? That's not an option in the kingdom of heaven. You can't just go around and offend people. There's a better option, and it involves millstones and lakes. He says in verses 7 to 9, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The Greek word here is skandalizo for temptations to sin. Woe to you who causes a scandal and causes people to be put off Jesus through this. I um, had uh, a lady last year when we were advertising a, an event for the church here. Um, there was a lady who got in contact with the church and she was really angry and she sent us a, a really hostile message when we um, sent out some advertisement. I think it was for the lectureship last year. And she made it very clear in that message that her big issue with religion was the scandals that had occurred, um, especially in the Catholic Church, but in other religious institutions um, with regards to powerful men, men who were meant to represent God, um, abusing and um, 
doing awful, um, such unchrist-like things um, to innocent young people. And, you know, when I first got that message, I was, I was kind of upset at her um, for sending that to us. I said, you know, that's not our fault. We can't control um, the abuses in an institution that we're not involved in. That's, that's not our problem. But I do understand that these things upset people deeply. And Jesus is not upset with her, the lady who was, who was upset about all this. He lays the blame at the people who are causing the temptations to sin. The scandalizo. When you see Christianity and the name of Christ dragged through the mud in the news and the media because of the actions of people living an immoral, unholy life, people thinking that they can get away with sin and then getting caught with it, um, Jesus says, I tell you what's a better option than that. Let's not sugarcoat Jesus' words here. He makes it very clear that causing other people to stumble is completely unacceptable. And the tragedy of all this teaching is that you and I can name half a dozen people off the top of our head who have become disillusioned with following Jesus because of the scandalizo, because of the stumbling blocks that others have put in their way. Maybe you are even disillusioned right now in your faith because of the actions of someone else. And look, people will be offended by the words of Jesus. Jesus does lose disciples left, right and centre. But the point here is unmissable. Don't ever, ever do something that will cause someone to stumble that's not necessary. This is a big warning to anyone in their life who has sin that they're not dealing with. Um, if there's something there in your life, there's some kind of sin that you're just letting float under the water, no one else is noticing, seems to be going okay, nobody knows it, just you. Firstly, it will be revealed one day. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Secondly, you know that these things come out. We live in a world where things get exposed where you can't keep secrets, you can't keep these things for too long. And when they do get exposed, people get hurt in the process. And you have to ask this question, is indulging in that sin really worth stopping someone from following Jesus? Jesus says, nope, <laughs> better to go find a millstone in a lake than to let that happen in your life. Let's make this very clear. Jesus is not advocating um, that anyone actually kill themselves here. Jesus is never saying that suicide is a good option. He's bringing up death as an option because, not because it's a good thing, but because it's a terrible, terrible thing. And yet there is something still even more terrible. This is one of Jesus' classic um, word pictures where he's pointing to something that is so severe and so intense to try and get you to understand how important this is to him. He's talking about cutting off limbs. He's talking about death because he wants you to understand that this teaching is critical if you're going to be a follower of his. And he follows it up by giving the story of the, the lost sheep. You know, we value some people and then to others we say, oh, they're just not that important. Jesus says every single person is important. Even if I have 99 sheep here, I'm going to go searching over the hills to find that one sheep who is lost. 
Let's never treat people as if we can just say, well, at least I'm not offending 99% of you. We have to value every single person. And then he finishes by talking about forgiving one another in verses 15 to 35. This is the ultimate call to action that Jesus gives. You need to forgive each other if you're going to live in this community called the church. You need to be able to not hold things against each other, not grow in resentment, but rather freely forgive others and help them as much as possible to find a relationship with Jesus. Colossians 3 and verse 10 talks uh, a lot about this. From verse 10 to verse 14, we have all sorts of ideas of what life looks like in the church. And it says that there's no Gentile and Jew, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And if we treat everyone like Christ is in them, then we will treat them with dignity and respect. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these things put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Don't ever expect that following Jesus means you're part of a perfect church. That's not the point. How can you learn patience? with people if they never test your patience? How can you learn to show unmerited love to people if they always merit your love? How can you learn to forgive people if they're not wronging you in the first place? Being part of this community means being part of a flawed community where you have to work very hard to encourage, to build up, to strengthen the people around them and at all costs, to avoid putting anything in their way. And that's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. It looks like not looking out for number one, but looking out for everyone around us. Here's the main point. Followers of Jesus belong to a community where we strive for humility, we don't cause stumbling, we value each other, and we forgive freely. If you are a follower of Christ, I want you to think about these things. Think about the, the calling that you have Think about what Jesus has asked of you. And if there are changes that you need to make in your life, change it today. Change it right now. And if you're not following Christ, why not? What's the reason why you're not? What are you living for? Where are you going? Why don't you think about changing that today? Why don't you think about joining this imperfect community called the church, people who will fail you and let you down, but people who at their heart are trying to help you to know Jesus, to come into contact with him and to help you find that eternal life that you so desperately need. Um, why don't you talk to someone about becoming a Christian today? Why don't you think about that seriously and maybe ask someone some questions that are going through your head. Um, maybe reach out to someone in any way that you can to show them that you really want to put on Christ today. You don't want to put it off anymore. We're going to close with uh, song 129 now. Uh, song 129, the song is Amazing Grace. Let's uh, sing that together. It's okay.
can we learn patience unless the internet drops out on us?